our CEO met with the presidents and said, okay, this has hit COVID. Now it's real. And our people have gone home. And the only thing that's important right now is the safety and well-being of our employees. That's it. Joe, whatever it takes, whatever they need, you go do that because this is a time that we all have to pitch in and help each other. And that was a real data point for me where I went, see, that is what a people-centric culture is all about. It's when at the top, the very top, they say, I don't care how much money I lose. None of that matters. What matters is our employees happy, safe, and healthy. That was Cox Enterprises President and Chief People and Operations Officer, Jill Campbell. And in this episode, Jill and I discuss her career path across Cox, moving from operational leadership into HR leadership, how they think about flexibility at scale, the importance of business acumen in HR, and so much more. And we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency designed from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional search models with our flat fee structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Accelerator is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's people leaders through cohorts, community, and resources to support their growth. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, onto the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Jill Campbell. Jill is the President and Chief People and Operations Officer at Cox Enterprises, and there is a lot in that scope that I really want to dig into with Jill today. So Jill, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I'd love to have you open with an introduction for the audience. Sure. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, let's see. Um, I have been with Cox Enterprises for 40 years this summer. I know I was in the middle school program when um, we started, so don't do the math. But seriously, I joined the company right out of college and worked my way up in operations on the cable side of the business and eventually ended up as the chief operating officer for uh, that division and about five years ago, our, we're fourth generation family owned company. And the next generation stepped in to be the new CEO. And he asked me if I would change course and careers and come over and head up the people function for the company and the operations for the parent company, which was like mind blowing to me because I had just planned all my life to stay in operations and one day run the cable division. But when the head of the family asks you to do something and you've been there as long as I have and had such a great career, you say, well, why not? Let's try it. So I switched careers um, and took over the HR functions. And it's been really rewarding and amazing. I would have never imagined that I could bring the skills from being an operator into the HR function. And, And it's been really cool to see some of the differences that we've made. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, it's a fascinating path. I mean, A, being in one organization for that period of time and obviously rising your way up to the very top of the organization is such a, a fascinating story, but also the transition from the operation side 
to the people side. And I have a lot of questions about that. But before we even get into that, let's go back to the very beginning. You know, you, you studied sociology uh, in college, kind of before you started your career at Cox. You know, how did that uh, educational background shape how you think about people leadership uh, in, in the various roles you've had within Cox? Yeah, sure. I think um, everything about running a company is about people. They're the most important thing that you have, serving your customers and whatnot, and they are your customers. And so sociology is the study of people and groups, and I think it was a really great foundation for me because um, after I started working, after about five years, I think it was, I went back and got my MBA, and that combination was really terrific. Uh, because then I got the business sense tied to the people sense, and it was um, a good combination. Originally, I was going to be a psychologist like my father, and I was getting my master's in counseling and guidance, uh, and I took a class from him, and he gave me a B, and I was so <laughs> upset about that that I quit the program, and that was that, and that's how I ended up at Cox, because I left and moved to Oklahoma of all the strange places and started the job there with them. And actually it was, uh, I was the interim HR person at the ripe age of 21 when I started there. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, but luckily the HR person came back and the general manager at the time saw something in me and he started giving me operations roles. And that's literally how I started in the company was I managed what we called them the girls on the phone because there were no guys on the phone and then the guys in the field because there weren't any girls in the field. And he just kept giving me different pieces of the operation, which was such a gift. And at the time, I mean, think back, you know, in the early 80s, there literally were no women running operations in the cable industry, very male dominated world. So it was a unique gift that he gave me. Um, and trusted me that I could do that job. And from there, you know, I just continued up the ladder running different cable systems uh, throughout the country before I ended up at our corporate office. So um, you just never know where your career is going to go. You have to be open to possibilities, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in terms of, uh, you know, Cox Enterprises, um, for viewers and, and listeners that, uh, that may not be familiar with the business, could you maybe uh, just kind of level set um, size of headcount, uh, maybe a bit of an overview of the operations of the business. Yeah, happy to. Um, as I said, fourth generation family owned business, more than 100 years old, started uh, by Governor Cox in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, he bought a newspaper. And then from that newspaper, it de developed into uh, broadcast stations. So we owned television stations and radio stations. And then when cable started getting cool, we bought cable companies and continued to grow that. And at some point, we also got into the um, auto auction business. So we are the largest worldwide auto auction company. And um, that's essentially where dealers bring their cars to market. And then we show it and they buy it and then they send it to the consumer. So we have those two divisions, cable, uh, internet, phone, and then the auto business, which is also Kelly Blue Book and Auto Trader and whatnot. So we're sort of end-to-end -end solution for um, auto dealers. And then we have um, all of our new verticals. So we, our family is very much committed to the environment and sustainability. So we are looking at companies um, in that specter. We just bought a company called Bright Farms and think leafy vegetables grown in small hydroponic um, areas that are local to communities. 
And so as we continue to expand there, that at some point will be our third division, which will be completely clean tech. So around the globe, we have uh, 50,000 employees. Um, they're kind of split between divisions. And we have some operations uh, through our auto divisions uh, internationally, not a lot, about 5,000 employees in the UK, Australia, Brazil, and a couple other countries. So um, fast-growing uh, spot for sure. And it's just been an amazing thing to watch the company continue to grow and get into new businesses uh, so that they continue to be sustainable. Well, and let's talk about your role for a little bit, because I think, you know, your, your title is president and chief people uh, and operations officer. And in many companies, that might be three jobs uh, at Cox Enterprises. It is you. How do you manage your time across, you know, uh, those those three roles, the teams, the responsibilities and the scope and everything that uh, each of those roles, you know, traditionally would make up. But you're kind of working across all three. The answer I generally have to that question at anything is you hire really good people who know what they're doing and let them do their jobs, right? So we've got amazing people in our people solutions or what traditionally is called HR group. Um, and again, each of the divisions has a chief people officer and they have an operations person. So it's not running the operations of the divisions. It's running the operations of the parent company. So it's a little different than when I was chief operating officer at Cox Communications. And so for me, it's really making sure that we have a strategic direction, that they're aligned on what the goals are and what they're accountable for, and then they and their folks execute on it. Uh, and my job is really to get them the resources they need, uh, to stay close to the presidents of the divisions and our CEO, so that when we're putting things together for employees and looking at, you know, all of the things that we want to provide to them, that it's in step with what the business is looking for. That's oversimplifying it, I know, but it really is just a matter of kind of riding the ships and setting a course and letting folks do what they do best. And so you'd mentioned kind of in your journey within Cox, when you when you moved over to Cox Enterprises and were tasked with taking on the, the people function, the HR function for the first time, uh, I'm very curious about that transition. But before we even get into that, like, what was your, you were obviously a, a customer of, of human resources within the organization um, for you know many years before moving into that role of having ownership over the function. What was your perception of HR? And it's also kind of unique because I also realize uh, you've worked in one entity your entire career. So your experience with HR is kind of limited to your experience of HR within Cox. So yeah, I'd love to get your, just your perspective of the function and then maybe uh, kind of contrast that with when you were on the other side leading the function, maybe what, what things may have surprised you uh, about being on the other side. Yeah, I think um, honestly, to be really transparent about it, uh, I've found the HR function to be um, frustrating at times. In our company, tended to be more bureaucratic. They were there for employee relations kinds of issues and it's, you know, what you can't do, legal kinds of ramifications of anything that's going on in the operation and didn't find them to be a true business partner. So they were always, you know, at the table, but as a support versus a partner. Um, and that did depend on, you know, the people in the role. But I think just functionally, it kind of grew up that way. We had people who just were in line and didn't leave the company. And so to your point, probably didn't see anything different out there. So when I came over, I first 
quickly realized how complex <laughs> human resources is and how difficult and that the laws really are important and by state they're different and you know it's by division they were different and you know just the care and feeding that goes into the foundation of human resources policies and procedures and all of that is really very difficult but i did find that that business acumen and um, partnership was missing and so when i came into the role I looked at it with my folks and said, and think of it this way, employees are your customer. Just like a customer service rep has to deal with an external um, customer, our customers are our employees. And so we're, we're accountable to the business and how we um, deliver on that. And so it's really important to understand what our employees want, and it's important to understand what the business wants and needs. And so rather than why are we doing this program, because we've always done it or, you know, we like it. I said, we're going to go back and we're going to look at every piece of the employee um, chain, the employee experience chain. And we're going to start way before onboarding, we're way before recruiting. And then we're going to go all the way to when people leave. And we created something that we called EX Lab, which is Employee Experience Lab. And it was based on um, design thinking principles. Mm -hmm. And so we put together teams across the company in every function, every level, too. Uh, they didn't have HR expertise. We'd have somebody in HR on each of the teams. But it was a, uh, also a developmental program that they went in and let's say they took onboarding. And they went through and they had to do interviews with employees, uh, everybody from leaders on down to frontline. They had to interview other companies and benchmark what other companies were doing in their particular part of the employee experience. So if it's onboarding, what did that look like? And then they had to report out to the CPOs along the way, what were their findings? And they'd make a recommendation and they'd have to go back and test it typical design thinking kind of um, approach to it. And then at the end, uh, they put together what they believed the recommendation for each of those were. That went on with groups in each of these uh, pieces of the employee experience for more than two years. And we just tackled them one at a time. And we took them by importance. You know, where did we feel that we were lacking or there were some areas that were problematic. And the teams uh, just took them on one at a time and we went through them. And then that'll be iterative, you know, as we now we went into COVID and that put, you know, the kibosh on lots of those programs. Um, but as we come back out, it's then what's the next thing? So that's that's one thing I think that being in operations brought me to come into the um, people function was that discipline and thinking about employees as a customer and that you are at the table with the business and not just there to kind of, you know, do supportive kind of things. That and then budgeting, that was the other thing I found they um, weren't as disciplined around the budget and why they needed to add people or why they wanted to do a particular program. And so we went through a lot of finance one-on-one -on -one kind of classes with them and really spent time on going through their budgets and why they were important uh, and thinking about, you know, long-term plans versus just what are we doing this year and why does it matter to the business? And then we uh, had operation quarterly reviews where we sat down with our business partners and showed them the things that we were doing, but then asked them what's the relevance of that to them and was that meeting their needs in the business or not. So 
I, I think those are a few of the things that I'm proud of that we're now doing um, in the people function. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so much to kind of unpack uh, in, in that statement just around like the evolution of, of HR. And I think it's, it's partly why uh, you're starting to see more people like yourself kind of moving from the operational side of the business into the people leadership side of the business, because the business acumen uh, is is so important to the function and to building a people strategy that really aligns and supports with the business. And so, um, you know, embracing design thinking and how you think about redesigning things from the ground up. Because I was curious, you know, having having worked entirely in Cox through your career and not having experienced HR elsewhere, like how do you kind of do that external calibration around, uh, you know, proven practices? And so you, you, you kind of explain that the way the uh, EX teams would do external benchmarking, um, you know, with, with other companies to kind of figure out like what are best in class practices. Um, were there any findings from the EX Lab work that uh, you know you would have been like a, a kind of pie in the sky type initiative that uh, it just didn't fit Cox right now, but might might have been something that you've been thinking about? Like that would be really cool to do, but just not for us right now. Well, we had one and we did it. It was I, it was way out there, and I, I thought the organization would just you know lose their minds, particularly leaders, and they did. I, I will say. I think in retrospect, I would have waited on this one, but we went to unlimited PTO for our exempt employees. That sounds great, right? And that's what people wanted, and they don't take. 80 days and you know, all the things that, that leaders were afraid of, but our leaders really freaked out about it because they're like, well, what if somebody comes in and they want to take six months off? And we'd be like, well, what would you do now? Well, they would say uh, the HR policy is X, Y, Z. And we've said, oh, no, no, no. See, that's not leadership. That's You're not going to get to cite a policy. Now you have to say to them, why is that not going to work for you? if it's six months or the team. And then it changed that they really had to lead and um, talk to their people versus just blaming HR for something. And that I did see in my old role, they just blame HR for things. And so we kind of took all these policies and we really streamlined them. We, we lessened them. We made it so that there was more flexibility so that a leader did have the option on what they wanted to do. That was a really tough rollout, I will tell you. But now it's Nobody even talks about it or thinks about it. They know how to how to manage it. Nobody asks for outlandish things. You know, you think you're going to have tons of people doing that, and they don't. At, at the end of the day, what you realize is these are responsible human beings who seem to make it to work. They manage their checking account. <laughs> they have children that they have to raise, and so if you treat them, you know, with that respect, then they they rise to the occasion. They know what to do. And if there's one outlier, okay, deal with the outlier. Don't create these policies and procedures because somebody might do something to, you know, um, harm the company. So that's really how we approached everything that we did. Traditional HR and learning systems are largely rooted in legacy mindsets and practices. They're not equipped to keep pace with the dynamic times we've experienced since the events of 2020 and beyond. That's why I launched the Amplify Accelerator. The Amplify Accelerator is a platform for connecting, developing, and supporting the next generation of people leaders. Designed to support continuous learning and build capabilities and connections, the Accelerator helps modern people leaders build the necessary skills to successfully navigate this new world of work. The flagship of the Amplify Accelerator is the Cohort Program. These peer-based learning courses are designed to help you become a more confident people leader, Armed with a new global peer community and a toolkit full of actionable advice, resources, templates, and more, 
Cohort students engage in a mix of synchronous and asynchronous learning designed to fit into the schedules of today's people leaders. You'll also learn from world-class guest instructors including Katie Burke, Caitlin Holloway, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, AJ Thomas, Tiffany Stevenson, and so many more. Ready to invest in yourself? Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com slash cohorts. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so fascinating hearing that analogy because one of the, um, uh, you know, I published a book last year called Redefining HR, and it kind of talked about the evolution, and the contrast between legacy HR and modern HR. And one of those shifts was moving from kind of policy against the few towards policy for the many, right? Uh, you know, assume people will make good decisions. Uh, and if somebody doesn't on an individual basis, you deal with that, but you don't uh, automatically kind of come up with a worst case scenario and then make that the default assumption that uh, all employees are going to do that. So it's, uh, yeah, I appreciate hearing you, the way you think about that. Um, you know, you, you've written about um, the importance of creating a, a kind of people-centric culture um, at Cox. And I'd love to get your perspective. Like, what, what, what does that mean to you? When you think of a, a thriving people-centric culture, how does that operate? What is the, the experience like for employees in an environment like that? It's so interesting. You know, I grew up in the company, so I, you're right. I don't know any differently, but it has been a value and a core tenet of this company since the governor founded it. I think being a family-run business, they really care about their people. Governor Cox even left in his will and said to his children to make sure that they recognize and take care of employees because it's on their backs that they created, you know, the great life that they have. And that just sort of stuck. And, you know, when I think about companies that you've got a CEO and their team and they think, well, let's put together what our values are. What do we want our you know, purpose to be and whatnot? And they got a whiteboard and they're like, yeah, yeah, a community. Sure, that's good. You know, people. Well, we didn't do that. That was the governor to his children, to their children, to now the fourth generation. It's their family values. It's what they believe. And it's ingrained so, so tightly in each one of us um, at Cox that it's that secret sauce. So I start with that because I didn't create a people-centered kind of culture here. I grew up in it. And my role and I think my charge is to make sure it stays that way and continues to grow and get better. So it feels and looks like this. You actually care about people that work here. You care about each other more than you care about what the outcome of the work is. Our CEO, trust me, knows the names of most of the employees that are at the corporate office, and he's very approachable. We really walk the, the walk on inclusion. We want people to be themselves, come in. We like people to say what they think and um, what they believe and feel like this is their home. You'll hear us talk a lot about family. You know, we believe that that's the case. Um, you know, recently, even through COVID, I'll tell this story because I think this illustrates the employee first kind of feel at Cox. Our CEO met with the presidents and said, okay, this is hit COVID. Now it's real. And our people have gone home and the auto um, industry, you know, was in big trouble and the auctions had to close and they lost a billion dollars right off the bat. And Alex said to our CFO, I just first need to know one thing. Are we going to survive this? Are we solvent? Is everything okay? And he said, yeah, we're going to take a hit, you know, in the short term and we'll build it back up and, 
you know, we'll tighten our belts, but we'll be fine. He said, okay, then I need all of you to hear this. The only thing that's important right now is the safety and well-being of our employees. That's it. Joe, whatever it takes, whatever they need, you go do that because this is a time that we all have to pitch in and help each other. And that was a real data point for me where I went, see, that is what a people-centric culture is all about. It's when at the top, the very top, they say, I don't care how much money I lose. None of that matters. What matters is our employees happy, safe, and healthy. It's a powerful story, I think, particularly because it emphasizes a really important point that creating a people-centric culture um, begins at the top. It begins with the CEO. It begins with the C-suite. And, and you know, too often, I think companies look at the responsibility of that uh, and place that on the people team. Uh, and, and, you know, the people, obviously the people team has a very active role in helping shape and foster and support, uh, you know, that, but they don't they create it and they don't own it and it's got to be owned from the top. And so that, that story I think is, a, you know, just a powerful reminder of, of the importance of that. You know, I want to, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about is we're, you know, kind of building this new world of work. Um, you know, as we speak, right, we're developing new practices that hadn't existed before. We've kind of moved away from industrial era concepts of, you know, the, the where and when and why work happens, not necessarily the why, but the when and where and how. And I think uh, you've rolled out a, a flex work program at Cox. And I'd love to learn more about that because I think um, flexibility is key. We hear a lot about, you know, hybrid and we hear a lot about remote and those, those, those constructs are here to stay. Um, but really the, the key element is flexibility. It's choice. It's, it's, it's putting agency and empowerment on employees to be able to create constructs that work best for their professional and personal lives. And so you obviously have a, uh, you know, 60,000 employee population across a range of different um, industries, geographies, and and functions, right? Some are kind of corporate employees. Some are, are, are employees who have to be, uh, you know, on-prem for the work that they do. And so I'd love to just get your perspective. Like when you think about kind of creating uh, flexible work constructs at the scale you operate, what what drives how you approach that and kind of what that means for you and employees at Cox? Sure, but, and this will be another example of an, an employee-centric approach to how we do things. We spend a lot of time talking to other companies. I'm in a little circle of all the Atlanta HR people. That's another way that I, you know, find out what folks are doing. Um, and how we decided to approach it, again, using e, our EX Lab methodology, what do employees really want, blah, blah, blah. We decided that it needed to be team-centric. And so we said to our leaders, uh, you get with your team and you decide how you want to work. And if you want to work and come in, you know, one week and you don't come in the next and you travel the next, that's up to you. And you talk to your boundary partners and, you know, if you have a lot of work to do with another team, make sure that they're in sync with what you're doing. And that was literally how we approached it. Now, I'm not going to say there was an angst on that, just like the PTO rollout. They're like, what? What if my employee doesn't want to commit? We did all that again. So, you know, in the execution, it was still tough. But um, we started it a year before. We started socializing it, talking to teams. We said to them, this is going to change. When you get in, you're, you're going to hate it, and then you're going to do something different. And we also said, um, 
to our leaders, also give your employees the flexibility on when they come in and when they leave. It may be because of traffic that it's better for them to be here at 10 in the morning and, you know, go home at seven at night. And so we're honestly experimenting with all of that right now. And the change that we made in the building, I think is pretty significant because we've said to our folks, when you're here, we don't want you on Zoom all day or just doing one-on-ones in your office. What is the point? Stay home or go to the library or wherever you're going to do that. When you're here, we want to see teaming and you know networking and laughing in the cafe and all the things that you miss when you are remote and at home. So we completely changed the cafe. We now have what we call um, Make a Little Music Mondays, and we have uh, several employees who come down in the morning, and they, while people are having coffee, they play the piano and sing and, you know, do all of that. Um, We've done some mores out in the yard and bringing in food trucks, just trying to make the atmosphere really fun every day. So when people are here, they're enticed to come in and work with each other and, you know, understand why they're in the building versus sitting at home. So I I think we're going to learn a lot, all of corporate America in the next year. Um, People do want to come in. They want to see each other. They just don't want to do it every day. And they don't want to do it to come in and just sit in their office. That's really, I think, the the lesson that we're learning. But um, we left it very flexible and open. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of, um, obviously, the role of an office uh, has to be kind of reimagined as we design this new world of work. And I think a lot of companies are approaching it more of like a a clubhouse and or kind of social space where, again, as you mentioned, like deep work happens uh, at home or wherever they work outside of the office. Um, You know, Zoom, those types of things can happen there. But when you're in the office, it's more of having that collaboration, uh, you know, coordination, kinship, those things that, uh, you know, just that, 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 that in-person chemistry uh, elevates, right? And so really focusing and being deliberate around how you think about that and also think deliberate about how you think about what things happen synchronously versus asynchronously. I think that's also a big part of this shift. Um, one question I'd love to get your perspective on, obviously, you know, you came from the uh, the operational side of the business, um, you know, running the, the organization now, but also the, the HR and operations function. And we talked about business acumen. And I want to come back to that for a moment, because I think that that is such a key element that is uh, vital for HR leaders, regardless of whether they're in the C-suite or not. I think any any leadership roles within HR, um, they, they have to have that business acumen coupled with their HR expertise and acumen. And so I'd love to get, you know, what advice might you have for people who are watching right now who want to build their business acumen uh, as a leader? What, how should they be thinking about doing that? Where should they go? How should they approach Um, trying to kind of build that muscle if that's not something that they've had a lot of direct experience with in their role to date? Yeah, I mean, one, I'd look to the company that I'm in and see what they offer. We have tons of different classes online that people can take, whether it's even just, as I said, Finance 101 and just the basics of um, getting your own mini MBA or go get an MBA or go get a business degree if you if you can do that. We have a lot of employees who do that. You know, we pay for that for them. And um, that's a good foundation if you have not been on that side of uh, the company before. But the other thing we started was something we're called we call gig, the gig work. And um, a, a manager can post a project, let's say, that he has in his department And people can then talk to their leader and bid on working on it either part of the time or on their own time. And so they get the chance to go into the business and work on a project that otherwise they wouldn't have had the chance to do. 
and our particularly millennials are really interested in learning, you know, different parts of the business and different functions. And so we're just starting to pair them in those different ways where they, they aren't taking a big leap and going into another role, but they're learning along the way. Um, design thinking is another way because it really forces you to get into the business and work on something that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. And I think lastly, um, sometimes you have to take a chance and it may be, you know, I've told people before, you might have to go lateral or down in order to go back up. And if it's really important to you that you want to have those business skills or you want to be in the business, then, you know, take a track the other way and get into it and then grow from there. And then if you want to come back through the HR ranks, you can do that as well. So I think it's a combination of things, but you, you have to own your own career. You know, a lot of folks sit back and, you know, wonder and why am I not being hired for things? But I think you have to be out there and state your intentions and what you're looking for. And, and a lot of times you're going to have to self-educate and get it on your own. Well, Jill, I really appreciate all of your your insights and wisdom and just learning more about your own story uh, and growth within Cox. Um, you know, we we close every episode of the lightning round just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. Uh, and we always start with music. So I'm uh, I'm checking out your Spotify playlist or, or wherever you get your music. Uh, who will I learn or some of your top three artists? Yeah, I'll date myself. I'm not a Spotify gal. I'm kind of back in the 70s. You know, I love the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, but I am a big country fan. So uh, Keith Urban, Luke Bryan, you know, the usual suspects. I'll, I'll go back and forth between when I was a kid and what's on the radio from country today. Yeah, well, I, I definitely appreciate the 70s reference. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a big Yacht Rock fan myself, so I, I love going back to that time. Um, <laughs> let's shift to TV. Obviously, uh, a space kind of near and dear to your heart, I imagine. Um, what uh, What is your latest binge? So I've been watching Ozark for a long time. And we also watched um, just recently House of Gucci. Wow. I, I had no idea that that had happened in real life. So that was pretty good. And I thought Lady Gaga was extraordinary. And who doesn't love them some Ted Lasso? Uh, oh. that, I can't wait for him to come back. That's just such a feel good. Uh, so there's many. I love uh, Bridgerton. I know, but I do, you know. So there's some fun ones like that that we've been streaming. Okay, we're shifting careers. Uh, obviously, you've had a few careers already. So I'm taking what you've done off the table. You have to do something new. Uh, what would it be? I've often thought I would like to be a motivational speaker, but you kind of have to have something to say, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> an important know. ingredient, yeah. People are like, you should write a book. I'm like, uh, what would I write it about? So, you know, that, yeah. So maybe in my next life, I'll do something like that. And uh, Jill, last question for you. Um, who is one business leader who you admire and why? Oh, man, there's so many. I, I will, I'll give one close to home. And it, it really came to fruition during the pandemic. And that's Ed Bastian, who runs Delta. I thought the way he handled that, and I know his HR folks really well, um, and how he handled his employees and just publicly was really, really well done. And obviously in Atlanta, I, I fly Delta all the time. And as a customer, I've been very impressed with um, their level of commitment to service. So right now, he's my corporate guy. Well, Jill, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your career and your wisdom. And I really appreciate you making time for this. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. 
And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.